Hey everyone, Andrew here. I'm going in a bit of a different direction today in, regarding, in regards to the topic that we'll be discussing. I visited with Dr. Carolyn Colley. Uh, she's one of our absolutely fantastic internists and hospitalists here at Washington University in St. Louis. And I've had the honor and pleasure of working with her uh, two separate times during uh, my residency uh, first at the beginning of my intern year, and then second at the end of my second year. We're talking today about um, non-beneficial medical care, which used to be called medical futility, but we'll talk about that later. It's a very interesting discussion. I really enjoyed speaking with her about this. We talk about you know, a lot of situations and code situations that she and I have participated in, and patients who are in the ICU with very complicated uh, medical courses. This is a curriculum and topic that's not well uh, emphasized through my medical school or residency curriculum, so I found it extremely helpful and, and very insightful. I hope you enjoy the episode. This is AP Cardiology, and this is your host, Andrew Perry. Thank you for meeting with me today, Dr. Kali. Uh, Dr. Kali is one of my inpatient attendings. Would you mind just uh, introducing yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Dr. Caroline Kali. Um, I am an academic hospitalist here at Barnes Jewish Hospital in Washington University. I've been here for about 10 years now. Um, I have lots of roles and things that I do here, but I think the reason why you have me here today is for my role on the ethics committee. Mm -hmm. um, I am the chair of the committee. I've been the chair of the committee since this past October, but I've been involved in doing consults for the ethics committee since around 2013. Uh, I don't necessarily have any formal training in ethics other than I took a lot of courses in it as an undergrad and then all throughout medical school um, and like it's sort of my, my passion. Gotcha. And I'm sure you've had a lot of on-the-job training and experience. Lots and lots of on-the-job training, yes. Okay. Yeah, I want to talk to you today about, yeah, your role as uh, being involved in ethics. And there's a couple of cases I want to first describe and just kind of get your reaction to. And these are cases, uh, first is a case where I had on the, uh, working in the emergency department. I was there one morning and we had a, you know, middle-aged woman come in with a history of metastatic breast cancer and she was in a cardiac arrest. And so we began doing uh, compressions on her. She had arrested like in the ambulance on the way over. You know, she'd probably been arresting for around 20, 30 minutes at that point by the time I was taking care of her. And we kept going more and weren't able to get, um, uh, to get any uh, ROSC obtained for her. So my attending had asked me, you know, put in a, to put in a central line on her while we're doing chest compression, while she was able to like get in touch with the family. And I remember just at that time feeling a little uncomfortable with the situation because there was, you know, I found this patient with metastatic uh, cancer uh, who had been under arrest, you know, for 30, 40 minutes at this point. And we were kind of maintaining to, you know, perform CPR on her and attempt to resuscitate her uh, with a kind of a grim, poor neurological outcome from what I was, uh, from what I felt or what I thought. And then second, similarly, um, Working in the coronary care unit, I had a case one day where a gentleman had come in with a, a STEMI, and he was taken immediately to the cath lab. 
And before they were able to do any interventions, he arrested on the table, and they have chained Rosk. Uh, he arrested again on the table, so they decided to send him just straight up to the CC without doing any intervention. He arrested again in the elevator on the way up, so he came into the unit, you know, actively doing compressions. We got him in his room. We're doing more compressions. Again, this is around like a 30, 40 minute mark after him, like his first arrest where I started taking care of him. And the fellow who was on that night, she told me to continue doing uh, compression on the patient to keep running the code while she was able to get in touch with family and talk to them about their goals of care for him. And I had similar feelings uh, at that time about like the prognosis and what I was doing there at that time uh, in continuing to perform resuscitative measures. I guess my first off, my thought is just how do these, what's your reaction to these stories? Or so, I mean, Sadly, I think it's a, a, something that we see a lot, and I think that I happen to get involved in these cases more um, after we get Rosk, and we've done some type of an intervention, and now it becomes apparent after several weeks that the person's actually not going to wake up, and that there is some type of persistent vegetative state or neurological decline or irreversible neurologic injury, mm-hmm. right? So not brain death, because brain death is death, right? Yeah. But but some type of persistent vegetative state that, you know, because of what had happened to them. Mm-hmm. So I, I've gotten a lot involved in a lot of those cases because we're a trauma center. We see lots of patients that come in with, you know, multiple gunshots and other things. And, you know, we do all the things here, right? We, we do all the things. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we sort of, no pun intended, shoot first and ask questions later, right? Because that's how we're trained. That's, that's what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it's hard sometimes in the moment to make a decision about what somebody's neurological outcome would be. So sure. in your cases, I feel where you're going with it as far as being uncomfortable. But I, I think sometimes we do these things because we don't know what that other endpoint will be. Mm-hmm. Right? So futility, which is, I think, the question you're kind of trying to get at. Yeah. And by the way, we don't use futility anymore. Like that's sort of the... Oh. Out, out of term, uh, no you know, out of fashion term, it's, more, it's, it's not in vogue, right? Okay. We now say non-beneficial medical care, right? So, I mean, we know okay. what futility is, but I think that a lot of, you know, non-medical ethicists sort of argue with that, like, it's like a doctor's trump card, right? Because only a doctor can decide what is quote-unquote futile, right? Okay, right? sure. And futility is sort of like a judgment call, too, right? Mm-hmm. Which we as physicians don't necessarily have any special authority to make a judgment a value judgment, uh-huh. right? So, so to give you an example, what I mean by by that is, if the goal in doing CPR for a patient is to get their heart rhythm back, then CPR in and of itself is not futile, right? Okay. But if the goal in doing CPR for the patient is to get them back to their prior state of living, you could argue that after doing 30 minutes of CPR on somebody, you're not going to get back to that, uh-huh. right? So then then it would be sort of a non-beneficial or futile thing. Gotcha. Does that sort of make sense? Sure. So I guess the term non-beneficial puts a greater emphasis on the fact that we can't assume what the priorities of the patient or the family would be. And maybe exactly. non-beneficial is describing it more in the terms of what the patient or the family would want and does this action with this action achieve those goals? Exactly. So it also has to be very goal-directed. So I think what we lose sight of in medicine is that everything we do should have a goal. 
right? And so, I mean, another example of things that we do that would be considered sort of futile would be, you know, dialysis in a patient that would never be able to tolerate dialysis in the outpatient setting, right? Uh -huh. But, you know, if the goal is to get that person out of the hospital, then starting dialysis on them is not beneficial. But if the goal is to keep their acid levels normal or to keep them hemodynamically stable or take away their hyperkalemia, well, we can achieve that. Mm -hmm. right? So I think it's a reframing. Now, that still doesn't take away the uncomfortable feeling that you were feeling when this was happening, but I think that it's important to sort of address that because I think it makes things a little bit more clear in how you're viewing these situations. Mm -hmm. So in the case of your patient in the ER, um, a couple things. Do you remember how old she was? She's like in her mid-50s. I think she's around like 55, 60. Okay. And did, did you know her medical history? Did you know that she had metastatic breast cancer? Yeah, because she had been to our hospital before, so we had some records on her. Okay. Yeah. In fact, I think she was getting her treatment here at Simon. And do you think any of those, like, that knowledge sort of weighed into what your feelings were in the moment when you were doing CPR? Uh, because, yeah, I remember we, because uh, we had been, since she had arrested at home and on the way, the ambulance had called ahead, so we had a chance to, like, look in her chart and kind of see who she was. Right. So then I know, okay, like, this is what it is. And I do think that kind of impacted my feeling, thinking, you know, metastatic probably has a poor prognosis and, you know, having a cardiac arrest, you know, for lack of a better way of saying, is kind of a peaceful, easy way to depart and to pass away. Did you have a differential in your mind of what the cardiac arrest could be from? Uh, at the time, no. I was just, like, working on getting her cardiac arrest, like, taken care of. We were going, it was a PEA arrest, so we were working through our H's and T's. Right. Okay. So, I mean, I think what's difficult in these situations is, you know, like I said, you know, sometimes we just have to sort of do the thing and then think about the repercussions later. Mm -hmm. um, but I will say that there is a moment in all of that, and I think that like the American Heart Association, when they teach ACLS classes, I was an instructor and the director of classes for, you know, out in Boston for years and years and years, and I think it's something that we often forget to add at the end of it, which is you can stop at any point, mm -hmm. right? And you sort of have to make that decision based on like clinically what, what you think the outcome will be. So, I mean, I think that in that setting, it would have been very appropriate for the attending to sort of say, you know what, like, this is somebody that has this other disease process. This is our sort of list of differentials of things that we think it could be, whether it be, you know, massive PE or mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera, that is causing this process. Given our experience with people in PA arrests and ACEs delay, like, the you know, uh -huh. odds of bringing somebody back, like, these are all things. So, so they could have made the decision in, in that moment to say, we've yeah. done several rounds of CPR, like this is, we, we can probably stop. Like this is likely not going to be beneficial for this patient. Mm -hmm. um, but that said, it's always nice to include families in these discussions because as much as I'm a you know big advocate and proponent of doctors being doctors and doing the work of doctoring, which sometimes is the hard work of telling patients, we don't have anything else to offer you. Mm -hmm. I still think that sort of unilaterally doing that without including the family members is absolutely not appropriate. Does that kind of make sense? Yes. So I think that you're attending wanting to call and get the family there and get them on board is kind of appropriate. And, you know, so maybe doing it. Sometimes we do things not necessarily for the patient and for the family, and I think that that's okay. Mm -hmm. Does that help at all? Is that sure. Yeah. So and somewhat in that respect, it's almost like the... 
you know, the patient has then become the family in almost some, in some, in some manner. Right. And I think that the goal in this case was potentially to get, have time to get the family there or have time to get in touch with the family. And so then doing CPR for that extra period of time becomes less futile and sort of maybe more beneficial. Mm -hmm. That's kind of how I would, if we're me in that situation, or if I was called on a status consultant. Mm -hmm. Does that satisfy you as an answer? Um, does it satisfy me? Uh, I think I can understand that, that perspective and that, um, that rationale there. Although I, I feel like at, at some point there's, you know, me as a physician, I feel like there's got to be at some point or some circumstance in which I'm, I have the ability or the right to be able to say, you know, what, well, I think this isn't leading anywhere beneficial uh, in any like and you absolutely any you absolutely have the ability and the right, and more importantly, I think you have the duty. You have an ethical duty to make that decision for your patients. As a resident, it's a little harder to be the one that makes that decision, right? But yeah. When you are the sure. attending. You absolutely, at any point, I mean, if you felt, and I think that this is something I talk about when I <clears throat> have done my futility lectures in the past, when I, you know, the, the beauty of a lot of this is what you feel comfortable with in the moment. It's more difficult as a doctor in training, right, mm -hmm. to, take, to take those steps. Um, but, you know, as the attending physician, if you think that providing XYZ is not any benefit to the patient and in fact maybe harming the patient, mm -hmm. I think it's your ethical obligation to, to stop, right? And to explain that to the family. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard in training though because you're not sort of the, the final end in that. Yeah, that it's, not, it's ultimately not my name on the bottom of the chart. Right, and so you sort of, and, and to be honest, I mean, I think if it was truly like a situation where you felt like you were truly sort of going against like your feelings as a physician, and there are cases like this that come up in the, in the hospital, right, in the different units, like that's when they sort of get the ethics committee involved mm -hmm. so that you can have this other sort of perspective on things. Gotcha. So yeah, so absolutely, as, a, as the physician, as the physician in charge, I do think that we should do a better job of helping guide patients and making these types of decisions in families. Mm -hmm. I hear you. So maybe as the kind of things that we've discussed so far that really it's talking more about non-beneficial medical care, how that fits into the patient's wishes, their goals, family's goals and wishes, and always trying to, in these situations, be sure to involve family rather than being the unilateral cowboy, yes. you don't want to be long gun yes. doctor who's calling the shots. Absolutely. I mean, I think that although legally you may be backed up in some of these situations or cases to make a decision without the family's input, I don't think that, you know, ever it would be advisable to sort of make that type of unilateral decision. We actually have a current case that I'm consulting on in an ICU right now, and, and it's a similar situation in which the patient is intubated. It's gone on for several weeks. The team feels like, you know, it's time to, to stop and not move on with any further care, um, and the family is still not there yet. Um, and then the social worker actually found advanced directive paperwork, so that's something we probably won't talk much about today, but mm -hmm. <clears throat> people do fill out living wills, and we actually found the living will that states very clearly that the patient would never want to be intubated, <clears throat> would never want dialysis of note, 
this patient is currently on CBVH or dialysis. Uh-huh. Um, and so they called today and they said, we have this piece of paper that says the patient wouldn't want any of this. Can we stop all of it? Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and the answer is, I mean, legally, potentially, yes. But if there's still sort of disagreement amongst the family, we need to address that, right? We can use this paper to say to them, this is clearly what your loved one would have wanted. Mm-hmm. And we as physicians also believe they're deriving no benefit from this treatment. And we actually you know, recommend going forward with stopping, mm-hmm. but sort of unilaterally without getting their input um, is, is not a recommended course. Yeah. It requires a lot of these, what, what, what do you have to describe these? More of these uh, people, interpersonal skills that we don't really develop a whole lot of during medical school and residency, like communication skills and how to interact with the family, how to interact with patients in these discussions. Right, and these can be very nuanced discussions, right? Um, And oftentimes you don't have a relationship with the patient. The first time you're meeting them is when they are, you know, when they're in the ICU, they're they're intubated. Actively dying. Yeah. Um, And you don't really have a relationship or rapport with, with them or with the family. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're sort of sent in there with the task of, you know, trying to help them figure out how to proceed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, similar to that case that you're describing, you know, there was another case that I had, again, in the uh, coronary care unit. This is more a reflection of just how much time I spend in the coronary care unit rather, rather than, <laughs> like, <laughs> rather than how many of these cases end up in the, in the CCU. But uh, this was... Uh, you know, again, about a 50-year-old woman, she'd come in with cardiogenic shock, bad heart failure, and was on uh, three vasopressors and intubated. And we were unable to wean any of her support. You know, the heart failure team came by, evaluated her, and said, you know, unfortunately, we can't get her an LVAD. She's not going to be able to get a transplant. She's just far too sick for any of these options. And so then it came down to talking to her brother, who was her next of kin, and his feelings were, you know, I don't, you know, I think understandably so. He didn't want to feel like the one who um, made the decision to withdraw support or, you know, decrease medication that leads to her death. And I remember him using the phrase, I want her to die naturally. And so, you know, initially we said, okay, that's okay. We can like let her progress. And uh, I think where it really became more uncomfortable for me is about like two weeks into this. Of after her like being admitted and kind of this understanding of there's no exit strategy for her and her just like still kind of like petering on slowly slowly just watching her pH rise and like her heart rate slowly decrease so a couple things here so you know what uh, beneficence is uh, I do well beneficence I could guess by the base of the word that it's like what are you doing good for right somebody. so we took an oath when we graduated medical school First, do no harm, right? And mm-hmm. then, in fact, you could argue we should also do good for a patient. So I think when you tell me the story about this lady and her, there's a couple things I want to address here. The first thing is oftentimes we put sort of unnecessary or unrealistic expectations on family members to make decisions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've spent years studying and in training to sort of understand, like, the physiologics behind heart failure and the startling curve and pressors and, you know, all these things, right? Mm-hmm. And then 
we bring families in and patients in, <clears throat> and they often have not just low medical literacy, which is pretty much anybody outside of sort of a, a, a medical field, mm-hmm. uh, but maybe low just literacy in general. And we sort of expect them to take all this information and make a decision. Yeah. Right. So I think that we do our patients a huge disservice in that respect. And mm-hmm. I personally don't do that. I feel like it's my duty as a doctor to explain it to them in a way that like they can really understand. But even then, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if they really understand. And this could get into like other things that we do, like informed consent, et cetera, et cetera, with patients. Sure. Like, how can you truly be informed if you can't really understand the basis of it? But but that's an aside. Yeah. But so what we say to patients and family members in these situations are things like do you want us to do everything? You know, do you want us to keep going? Mm-hmm. Do you want us to stop? Right? Because that's our sort of way of kind of. Yeah, that's frequently the phrase that's used. <laughs> because that's our sort of doctory way of like taking it down a couple levels on like sort of a more, you know, average level of understanding things. But uh-huh. think about that. Like, Nobody's do you want gonna us to say do, no. Who's going to say no? <laughs> Don't do everything. Yeah. Or like, Give me, like, the half approach, please. (laughs) I'll take the, you know. So, I mean, I feel like just the way that we do that, like, Uh look, it's, you know, that's that's bad medicine, right? Like, that's bad, like. It's bad communication. It's bad bad communication, but it's bad lots of things. Mm -hmm. So, So there's that part of it. And then the other part of it with that patient, I think, is when they say die naturally, like, like, what did they mean by die naturally? Because guess what? Tubes down your throat on a machine with pressors is not natural. Yeah. And did anybody actually explain that part? Mm-hmm. That the only thing that was actually keeping her, quote unquote, alive. And, you know, for patients, when somebody has a pulse and they feel warm, like, they're alive. Mm-hmm. And they don't always get, families don't always get that it's this machine that's doing that. Mm-hmm. I mean, did anybody actually explain that to, to him? Certainly tried, certainly tried to help convey that. And no, I don't ever. I don't really feel like we got the sense that he like fully understood that this was an unnatural persistence of life. Right. And in the cases that I've been involved with through my years of, you know, work with the ethics committee, and then even just as a resident, I remember being in the unit. Like I remember like trying hard and getting patients to understand that or family members understand that when you get them to understand what natural and unnatural was like they would usually acquiesce right mm-hmm. and then there's this other part to this um, that sometimes just as a physician like we do have to guide patients in making these decisions so yeah I want to explore that a bit more how do you guide patients in helping make those decisions because frequently I feel like we get in this uh, or at least what I see done I think more of the time is that we get in this situation I feel like more often than not we end up in this situation with somebody who's intubated in like a vegetative state you know they're not brain dead which is death but it's kind of vegetative state with like minimal interaction and then it's kind of these like piecemeal approaches and it's almost like kind of a la carte you know medicine kind of making these offerings to patients of their families like Oh, well, are we going to do like intubation? Are we going to like do vasopressors? Are we going to do antibiotics? But how do we like help guide those discussions better? <clears throat> All right. So, so I don't know how to answer this. Um, I mean, if you're talking about like a true situation in which somebody's been 
in a persistent vegetative state and they're intubated and they're sort of in the unit and you're trying to help guide the family into you know proceeding with the next step in care which oftentimes as physicians you know you know we sort of view things as like quality right quality mm -hmm. of life um, which I want to add here that like again that's sort of like a, a judgment and you know physicians sure you know sadly we don't really have any special purview or authority in, in value judgments right yeah I mean, we can make judgments on you know what we think the benefits of a medical intervention are but as far as like the quality of somebody's life like that's and a quick example of this would be a case I was involved in several years back where there was a gentleman that had a brain bleed and essentially after many 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 surgeries he was left with pretty much no frontal lobes um, okay and at the time you know when they're doing this you know like it, it, you're doing the surgery like these are all things that it was a acute subarachnoid, like it all made sense, but then mm -hmm. back and forth to the OR several more times, and like eventually you're left with a situation where it becomes pretty apparent that like, I mean, he's not, he, he's probably not going to wake up from this, right? Now, he's mm -hmm. not brain dead because his whole brain's not functioning, but yeah. but for all intents and purposes, like, you know, this will be persistent in a vegetative state. Mm -hmm. I remember meeting with the family, and I asked them what their idea was of quality of life. Because I know what mine is. Mine is being able to like get up in the morning and have a cup of coffee and hang out with my kids and come to work and be a doctor and do, and do all these things. I know what I like to do. Uh -huh. um, but I want to know what their idea of quality was. And their, his wife told me that she believed life was worth living if you had somebody who loved you. So how do you argue with that? You don't. Yeah, you can't. I can't. Right? Mm hmm So I said, all right. He needs a trait, and he needs the G-tube, and he, you know, we need to proceed because this is their version of quality, and it doesn't feel right to me, and it doesn't feel necessarily right to you, but, but we don't have any special authority in saying what that is, right? Yeah. Um, but back to... Kind of what we were saying as far as you know helping guide patients in these decisions i think sometimes sort of literally laying it out for them and explaining to them what we expect this life to be right mm -hmm. if we do all these things this is where we think he will be he won't come home he won't be able to do xyz but he'll be there and, and i think sort of explain on this and if you've done all that i feel like that's kind of all we can do we can't we can't get an ethics consult to make the family change their view of quality, right? Yeah. To change what what is a good life. Mm -hmm. Now, you can ask them, and the answer could be that what they view as quality is being able to go back to gardening, or like a patient I have on our firm team, who his goal is to get back into the blind and shoot turkeys with his bow and arrow, right? So, yeah. So I'm like, you know, I, you know, that we should fix your hip, sir, because you can't do that without, without a hip. But, but here's the thing. If you don't ask patients what their goals are, and so if, if a patient's wife says, you know, he would want to go do this thing, you could say as a physician, he's not going to be able to do that thing. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. But we don't usually tell people that, right? We don't even ask them what their goals are. Usually not. Usually not. Should. All right, give me another. Another? <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm on fire. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. 
what I guess through through all of your experience, what what do you feel like are the the main themes or topics that come up for these cases that you get involved in? You're like, wow, I really wish we as a physician community understood this better, or we did this part better in in handling these situations or these cases. I think first and foremost, I think that almost every physician goes into this like with like empathy, and somehow along the way we lose that. So I think. First and foremost, I, I wish that every doctor would remember why we came into this thing that we do, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's it's the job that takes it out of us, right? Like the moral injury of what we get exposed to. Mm-hmm. But I think that I wish that every doctor would remember that that person in front of you is like a human being, mm-hmm. right? That has goals and hopes and dreams in a family that loves them um, and, and needs us to sort of help guide them in, in the next step. That's the first thing. The second thing is I wish that people would sort of realize that our goals and patients' goals are often, like, worlds away. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we do a bad job of sort of aligning those. And I think that if we did, and, like, really took the time to sort of communicate, that a lot of these sort of issues that come up um, would disappear. Mm -hmm. A lot of the consults I do really more about, like, breakdown in communication, breakdown in trust, breakdown in, you know, all these things because of sort of the way that that our you know institutions run right, especially when you're in an ICU setting, right? Day and nights, different shifts, and different doctors and different teams. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are kind of the two big things. I will say, for what it's worth, like when you hone these sort of communication skills, I feel like you don't end up in these types of situations. It obviously would never prevent you from being in a situation where somebody comes in through the ER and mm-hmm. needs CPR, and you feel like you're doing it too long. But I think that eventually um, you're going to be the attending and, and you'll get to be the one that helps sort of guide these decisions, right? Mm-hmm. And, and maybe you'll sort of look at the situation a little bit differently now and say, yeah, like the goal maybe is not quite to get her back, but to sort of give us time to get her family to help them sort of come to terms with that. And that's also an okay thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think maybe just sort of focusing on the call. Gotcha. Is that good? That is good. No, I like it because I'm thinking about, you know, the future, going into cardiology and thinking that comes up a lot. Right. Yeah. And I think maybe the last thing is, like, be the doctor. And the non-doctor uh, parts of the ethics committee kind of laugh and love when I say this, but it's so true. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, being the doctor is hard sometimes, right? Like, it's having difficult conversations with patients and families. It's sort of helping sort of doing things that are uncomfortable, but I mean, I think that that's, that's our job, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and not sort of pawning it off to the other team or to the intern, like not telling the intern to go in and get the DNR, you know, like sort of be the doctor. Mm-hmm. I feel like that should be a bumper sticker. <laughs> be the doctor. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Well, thanks so much for uh, talking with me. I thought that was a very useful conversation to have. Thanks so much. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this episode of AP Cardiology. This series is co-sponsored by MedPage Today and by the Division of Medical Education at Washington University in St. Louis School of Medicine. Much thanks to the band Broke for Free song Night Owl on their album Directionless EP I have used for my theme music. It is used under a Creative Commons license.